Welcome to the Software People Stories. I'm Shiv. I'm Chitra. And I'm Gaiti. We bring you interesting untold stories of people associated with the creation or consumption of software-based solutions. You'll hear stories of what worked and sometimes what didn't. You will also hear very personal experiences and insights that would trigger your thoughts and inspire you to do even greater things. In this episode, I am in conversation with Prasenjit Sarkar, a technologist, innovator, disruptor, and a distinguished engineer with Rubrik Inc. In his career spanning over 25 years, he has been a researcher, inventor, startup founder, and many others among the key roles that he has played. Today, he talks about his background and the growing up years in India, and doing his phd and then choosing to get into corporate research as he is more of a hands on person after about 15 years with ibm as a successful research scientist starting a company having the experience in large small company startups as well as being connected to academia he shares a lot of perspectives some technical such as working in storage big data management backup and recovery and then moving from data protection to data security etc he also talks about the experience of shifting from academics to corporate and the pleasures and pains of founding a startup and the key difference between research and corporate about the primary focus area in terms of leadership whether it is in terms of thought leadership or market leadership we also talk about the feelings when one startup is acquired by somebody else and aspects of chemistry and work styles that play out in acquisitions as well as the need to be pragmatic accepting decisions and moving ahead his tips for motivating people and sharing the founder's vision and excitement with the team is also something that he talks about and how managing people their aspirations the expectations their ambitions is a lot more difficult to manage i then asked prasenjit whether in building teams and people if an entrepreneur should take outside help the answer to that question and a lot more in the second part of the conversation listen on hi prasenjit welcome to the software people stories thank you for inviting me Uh, honored to be a guest on this podcast and uh, happy to relate my experience um i'll start out with a brief background of myself right so so i grew up in uh, what was at then considered socialist india without judging it one way or the other mm-hmm. but uh, at that point in time there was at least uh, a perception that if you wanted to do something more advanced you need to go to the west right mm-hmm. and so uh, so i structured my career not intentionally though accordingly right so i went i think i went into uh, one of the iits and from there i pursued my phd in the united states and then i moved on to corporate research i had the sort of flexibility between academic and corporate research but i sort of felt more more like a hands on person 
Okay. And so I decided to, I felt I was more closer to corporate research, right? And uh, so I ended up in the Silicon Valley. So I was there in, uh, so I joined IBM and I was there for about uh, a decade and a half till mm -hmm. I sort of figured out that bigger companies have their limitations, right? While I enjoyed my job and the freedom associated uh, at being a research scientist and a pretty successful one at that, I also sort of craved a more direct connection. So I sort of left my corporate job, started a company with a fellow friend of mine. And uh, so we started from scratch. We got to about 25 enterprise customers in three years, mm -hmm. three and a half years. And then we got acquired by another company. And so, uh, and which was actually incidentally another startup. And then we, uh, so I've been in that company since then. And uh, Sort of also risen through the ranks in that company, and I'm sort of uh, uh, a key technical decision maker within the company itself. Oh, very nice. So, so that's a sort of my career in a snippet. So, I've seen both ends of the big company as well as the smaller company, as well as startup. Uh, I have links with academia, and like so, I've been like uh, had varied experiences, and uh, I can sort of give you a perspective on what works for whom, right? I mean, not everything is for everybody, right? as you yeah, might well know, right? That. I mean, so, uh, and so, uh, like, I've also interacted with a lot of managers, got their perspectives. So if there are questions about, like, whether you should choose a technical line or a management line, um, I think I can ask the right questions to sort of make you decide that, right? So... Yeah, wonderful. Um, so before we get into you know, some of those details, for the benefit for our listeners, if you want to share something about the domain that you've been associated with, has it been uh, the same domain throughout in your academic research and at IBM and in your startup, or have, have they been different? So my... Uh, uh, academic... When a PhD was in uh, sort of a storage systems, Right. And so uh, what I did was I did join a, a storage research group in IBM, mm -hmm. uh, Almaden. And uh, so that was a pretty preeminent uh, place in even in Silicon Valley. Right. Because this was where the disk drive was invented. And this is where the uh, relational database was born. Right. That's two claims to fame. Right. Mm -hmm. Of that particular research lab. Um, so there's another cool things as well. I mean, I mean I'm just uh, stating some of the things which are more visible. And so it was a very uh, hallowed grounds sort of to be part of, right? The people who built the first disk drive, the mm -hmm. people who created the first relational database, right? Mm -hmm. And so these were legends, at least in our times and at least those times. Mm -hmm. And to be associated with such great people was at least an honor for me, right? So I yeah. was in storage and then I sort of did some work in storage networking, mm -hmm. uh, then somewhat in storage management. Then mm -hmm. I sort of moved over to big data and like, so I've sort of dabbled with Hadoop and uh, that area for a few years. Mm -hmm. And then I left to start a company in the backup and recovery space. Okay. The company which acquired us is also in the backup and recovery space, but I think we are moving from data production to data security, right? So I'm also mm. starting to dabble in 
security a bit, not a, like a core security, but more an applied security mm-hmm. uh, as a applied security practitioner, right? So it's been varied storage systems, big data, uh, data protection, security. So that's, that's a span. Mm-hmm. I do also have interest in other things, but I mean, you would c- c- consider these as sort of our main focus. Yeah, very interesting. I've had also a brief association with uh, storage when um, as part of uh, what we may in today's terminology call a perennial startup because we went through you know, multiple avatars, mergers, acquisitions, reverse acquisition, all that. So where we built a, a one new device, a rack mountable for a data center, uh, oh. the value proposition was to make these tape libraries uh, behave like a NAS uh, in the storage. Uh, what was the name of the company? I mean, I might recall. Uh, no, uh, we think... were uh, white labeling it. We're not selling it directly. The company right. is called Global Automation. Uh, got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Based in Mountain View. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I could, some nostalgia when you talked about you know, relational databases and storage systems and all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, a lot of questions triggered by you know, your the variety of experience you've had. Uh, first is, uh, what do you see as a big shift that you had to do moving from academics to the corporate environment? I saw academia is more about uh, a sort of selling ideas, right? I mean, so if you were to... Uh, sort of summarize academia, it's thought leadership, right? So mm-hmm. when you publish a paper, the intent is the paper itself, but the impact it has on the overall uh, uh, research community as well as potentially industry as well, right? So mm-hmm. just to give you an example of us, like let me just issue, a, think of a seminal paper, like uh, what was what started the whole transformer craze, right? LLMs, right? So there was a paper on uh, attention, right, by a, fellow, a lot of researchers in Google, right? Um, so they built the first prototype of how to, like, I mean, take the existing, like, uh, neural network technology and change the whole paradigm and introduce mm-hmm. this concept of attention, which is sort of the basis for transformers. And and so that became the basis for large language models down the road, right? Mm-hmm. So... Uh, so that's a paper which, I mean, it was not a commercial success by itself, but it was sort of started a new field, right? Mm-hmm. So the academia is more about thought leadership, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas industry is not so much about thought leadership, but market leadership, mm-hmm. which doesn't necessarily correlate with thought leadership. So mm-hmm. I'll give you an example, right? So IBM was probably the thought leader for relational databases, right? Mm. It was the wrote the seminal papers, both like for example for uh, transaction processing and recovery and uh, the SQL language and so on and so forth, right? So mm. those were first of a kind uh, ideas which were not even known elsewhere, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, so while IBM had a thought leadership, Oracle had the market leadership. Market leadership. Mm, okay. So market leadership has two parts to it, right? So where you build a product which solves a customer problem, right? Mm. Which in this case is that how do I uh, store digital data efficiently so that like customers can retrieve it quickly 
and it can be also used for analytics down the road, mm. right? So that's the, the problem, right? So you take all these ideas and you put it into practice in a very efficient manner, right? So the efficiency comes in two fronts. One is the engineering efficiency. So you develop a high quality product at the lowest cost possible, mm -hmm. which is not the concern of academia. So that's the, that's the engineering side of things. So there, uh, you are not necessarily trying to build the best product, but the uh, the best good enough product which can be delivered most efficiently, right? With mm -hmm. the terms of efficiency just described, right? So that's the focus on the technical side, right? Of the mm -hmm. corporate, uh, uh, in a corporate environment. And also there is this whole sales and marketing, right? You have a good product. How do you get it to people who want it? Mm -hmm. uh, that's a, not an easy problem to solve, right? Mm, yeah. Uh, so if you look at the history of uh, companies, I mean, there are a lot of companies which build very good products but failed because they were unable to reach the customer, right? Mm -hmm. So, so I mean, the industry is littered with such failures, right? Mm. So, so a corporate uh, life has to balance these two things, right? I mean, the technology as well as the go-to-market. Whereas academia is more concerned about thought leadership. Mm. Uh, part of it is translates, like a lot of academicians have crossed over into industry and have sort of uh, blended there. Mm -hmm. The reverse is not that common. I mean, it's, okay. I mean, there are obviously isolated examples here and there where successful industry practitioners have gone back to academia or something like that. But the... But there are more cases of people in academia who have adapted to life in industry. Right? Mm. So I would say the two complementary, but uh, at least in some countries, the connection is strong enough that they complement each other very well. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't speak to how good it is in India, but mm. I mean, I've seen it like, I mean, uh, in various countries, the relationships takes forms which are either very uh, uh, beneficial to each other Mm -hmm. Or sometimes they are very uh, separate, right? In certain countries, they're so separate that they sort of coexist without any relationship to each other, right? Mm -hmm. So, so symbiosis or the lack of it, right? I mean, that's how I would uh, call it, right? Yeah. yeah, we many times keep talking about this uh, collaboration between industry and academia. Uh, so, what kind of conflicts do you see? based on either the focus on the timelines, the short term versus in the long term, or like you said, uh, no, the more idealistic or the thought leadership impact versus market leadership uh, results. So the right amount of collaboration is, uh, I mean, if you look at it, it's like you where uh, you where industry funds, and this is like some probably the more well-funded industrial organizations fund research, which is more medium to long-term, right? Mm -hmm. With the hope that one of them will pan out. Right? Okay. So that's the probably the ideal form. So for very short-term deliverables, I don't think academia can work at the pace by which it can be integrated into industry, right? Mm. Right, academicians are like, I mean, I mean, it's just the nature of the business, right? I mean, you have students... You have grad students, they have more time over summer in the uh, in the autumn or fall or in the summer, spring semesters, they are doing coursework. Mm. So they don't, they work in very discrete intervals, right? And so 
that doesn't suit academia very well. So mm-hmm. I think academia and industry are not suited for short-term deliverables, right? Okay. Where I see it more, I mean, is more longer-term things, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so uh, medium to long-term things, right? We, I mean, there are a few success stories out there where uh, uh, industry-funded research has sort of uh, come back to sort of influence the uh, overall technical landscape. Mm. I think the most famous of that is Xerox Park, right? Mm-hmm. Where they founded the graphical user interface and yeah. the mouse, right? Mm-hmm. And so there are examples of that, right? Uh, so another example is Kinect. I mean, now mm-hmm. it's not a commercial success anymore, but I mean, initially it was a very big commercial success and it came from research, right? Mm. Microsoft have... research in this case. Oh, yeah. And uh, some of the AI technology has, I think, come from Google research, right? Some of the, I'm not an expert in AI, at least as you can make out from my background, but some of that has come from uh, Google research as well. Mm-hmm. So, did you have to face any personal adjustments or uh, at least recalibrating your thought or the uh, sense of urgency when you moved from academics to the industry? And this is, I guess, varies from people to people, but I did not have to. Like, I, I was a very, okay. I think, uh, even when I was in acad- academic research, I was more a very efficient person, right? I mean, I was pretty driven and uh, very conscious of deadlines and projects and planning. And so so that part of it wasn't too much of a big uh, learning curve for me, right? The mm-hmm. speed at which I worked. I think that I sort of... Uh, the adaptation there was very seamless. Okay. Where I think I sort of uh, had to go through a transition was this bent of mind to heavily technical stuff, right? I mean, mm. so, uh, which is, I think, more on the idealistic side. I think that that transition to something which is, I mean, to something which is practical, which is good enough and has to be delivered into the least cost, that adaptation was there right i mean mm. uh, as a as a academician and a sort of a thought leader i'm more biased to more interesting things but that's not necessarily what drives success in uh, uh, the corporate world right and the mm. ideas don't have to be the most far reaching and innovative right mm. uh, i mean you could find examples of things like tesla but there are a lot of business models which don't rely on technical innovation, mm. right? Uh, so, uh, like, uh, uh, I can't come up with a, I mean, I think, uh, come up with something that's very concrete in a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. But if you look at, uh, uh, I mean, there are some business models, like, I mean, uh, like, for example, uh, like, uh, Things like home delivery systems or some, mm. I can't come up with a good one right now, but there are things which are not very technically innovative, right? They're not like advancing mm. the field of technology, right? Mm. Mm. Um, uh, so where I think it, it depends more on execution and uh, how do you, how you reach your customer. So maybe home delivery systems is not a bad example, right? I mean, the technology there is, I think, you're not sort of breaking new ground there. But like, uh, but at the same time, you are have to be as efficient as possible, right? You yeah. use existing supply chain techniques, and you sort of deliver 
something new. Mm-hmm. Whereas, I mean, for the Indian audience, where the technical innovation is, say, Geo, right? Where Geo mm. managed to send uh, data over voice over LTE, right? And that yeah. was a key, key, I think, technical innovation for them. And that they included a lot of people from their labs in Bombay and they did something very innovative for the Indian market, right? Mm. And so then they broke new ground and they captured a lot of market share, which I think you are probably more familiar with it than I am, right? So so there are two contrasting things, but a, a successful business model does not necessarily have to have technical innovation. Okay. So for your next transition from, uh, say, the corporate to a startup, uh, how was that? In a startup, you probably have to roll up your sleeves for everything and also be uh, a multidimensional person, not just the technology right. part. Right? Yeah. So How was that I think, for you? I think the couple of things that stood out in a startup, right? Uh, one is that uh, it is a lot of hard work and a lot of stress. Mm-hmm. So stress which does affect your health. Hmm. Like you can always uh, uh, say, I mean, I think we talk about stress, I think, in terms of, uh, I mean, say, conflict or like in a workplace, in a, either academia or uh, or uh, what's it called? Or, um, um, or say, even the corporate world where you can have politics and conflict and which causes stress. But mm-hmm. this was an absolutely stress at a different level. Mm-hmm. And especially if you are a founder, right? And so mm-hmm. the success and livelihood of several people are dependent on w- what you are, are able to achieve, right? Mm-hmm. And that stress can take a toll on your health, mm-hmm. right? Because you are sort of, every day is a fight, right? And there's no respite. And so it's sort of, uh, not only does it make you tired, but it also causes a lot of like has a lot of side effects on you right so hmm. uh, so you have to have a i mean the advice i give you is that you have to have a stomach for it right? mm-hmm. uh, so and i think and this is where i think you mentioned that uh, do do people want to do a startup i mean that's i think the one thing that i would uh, I would sort of stress upon is that do you have the constitution to go through the ups and downs mm, and mm. and the stress? Mm. So I've had many founders tell me like they they made an excellent presentation, uh, they wowed investors, and people were very happy. They got their first ten customers, hundred customers, mm-hmm. and they celebrated that. But right after that, they went into a say a bathroom stall and vomited. Right. Because okay. that's yeah. the that's a toll that that high getting to the high has taken on them, right? Yeah. So so I would say that's one different aspect of it. It's uh, uh it it is a very uh, stressful environment, mm. but you have to sort of learn the mechanisms to cope with it and deal with it, right? So that's one. Mm-hmm. The second thing is that that's this world is more transactional, right? I mean, people mm. who come. To startups are there for a very specific reason. They either want the experience or the financial rewards, or they are keenly invested in the risk reward ratio, right? Mm-hmm. So they are not there for the love of technology or the uh, or the uh, sort of the 
uh, I guess the motivation to sort of become a thought leader or mm. make an impact, change the world or something like that. They are mm. there for a very transactional purpose, right? Mm. So you're dealing with personas which are very different. And that's something that you have to sort of adjust to, right? Mm. Like, so this has a relationship to one. If you're a startup flounders, people will leave. And it happened yeah. to us as well, right? And mm -hmm. so, and so your startup has always to have a again steady growth trajectory, mm -hmm. which is lesser than done, of course, right? And so that's I think the key challenge that is in one faces when one does a startup. Hmm. So continuing on that, uh, what kind of you know, thoughts or feelings that you uh, had? when you said that your startup was acquired, having built something and now it's going to be in somebody else's hands. But I think, I think it depends, right? I mean, so the question that people ask is me and I mean, and they ask other people whose companies get acquired is why did you sell? Mm. I think there is no easy answer to that one, but I think it's something that you say, you know, right? I mean, you think that this is, you've put in enough effort and perhaps you have reached the point of incremental benefit, right? Where mm. the more effort yeah. you put in, you're not going to get that much back. It, it's mm -hmm. sometimes a, a combination of circumstances, personnel, product, market, mm. right? I mean, it's sort of a combination of various things, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, an, an example, which is not applicable to our case, was that, uh, that sometimes people build products and the products just don't work, right? Mm. And it's going to take a lot of investment to fix it and you're running out of money. And mm -hmm. so sometimes you decide like this is not worth it, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you can try your best, but at a certain point you have to sort of figure out that this, I mean, this, so whether that this is a time to sort of uh, minimize your losses and move on, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so similarly, I think the question that we faced was primarily from a market standpoint. Mm -hmm. The market wasn't okay. growing as fast as we would liked, and uh, it was at least did not meet the expectations of the metrics required by investors. And mm -hmm. so, when an offer awesome. came along, we were happy to sort of go with it, right? So, mm -hmm. so that's I think a decision that I think everybody has to take. And uh, mm -hmm. once you take the decision, you have to live with it, right? I mean, uh, there is always a possibility if you had continued you would have uh, gotten a better return. But I think sometimes, and then this is a good philosophy in life, is that once you take a decision, you just stick by it, right? And not... Right. Right. But having taken such a decision and also continuing with pretty much the same team or in the same space, same organization, uh, did, it, did that require any adjustments both on the the founders as well as the acquiring organization, the senior people there? So obviously, I think the senior people uh, uh, there have run the company in a different way, right? And mm -hmm. so you always yeah. have to adjust, right? Mm -hmm. And the second thing is that the latitude of freedom you had in decision-making is no longer there, right? I mean, you are mm -hmm. a cog in a larger wheel at this mm -hmm. point in time, right? And you have mm -hmm. to sort of uh, uh, sort of adjust to the new reality, right? That you are mm -hmm. no longer, I mean, like, for example, in my startup, I was involved with marketing and uh, 
product and various support and various other things, right? Mm-hmm. So that's fine. But I think in a newer company, you don't get to, I mean, you are only, say, in engineering, right? You don't get to have a say in product or mm. customer support or sales or any other kind of thing, right? So, yeah, so there is this adjustment of both kinds. One, you have to adapt to the culture of the new company, and B is that your role is no longer the role it was before, right? So those mm. are two, I mean, interesting points of adjustment that you have to sort of relate to. Yeah. Uh, you talked about some of these stresses that one needs to be ready for when uh, choosing to be an entrepreneur. Uh, are there any personal practices that have helped you that you would like to share? I think there are two, right? One is that you have to have some time during a week where you completely divorce yourself from the company, right? Mm-hmm. Just don't think about it. Mm-hmm. Easier said than done, but you have to have the mental fortitude mm-hmm. to separate yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there is no point building a company if you are not alive to see the end of it, right? So mm-hmm. uh, you have to preserve your take care of yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so one technique is to have times during the week where you completely divorce yourself from the affairs of the company, mm-hmm. right? It does, and I mean you have to really put us put your foot down, right? Mm-hmm. I mean there is there are going to be times when you are needed twenty four by seven, right? Mm-hmm. But you have to sort of like have the discipline that I am not going to respond in these times. I mean, this is me time, right? Mm-hmm. Or family mm-hmm. time, whichever, whatever is the one that uh, gives you comfort, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the first isolation. The second thing is the coping, right? Mm-hmm. You have to develop mental, again, techniques to cope with the stress. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and different people do it differently, right? I mean, I cannot give you a general Thing, but no, it's more about you. Thing, was there something that worked for you? Yes. Or... One technique is what is the worst that can happen, right? Mm. So mm. let's say you are your your uh, you are supposed to hit a particular number in a particular quarter, right? Mm. And you don't make it because some deal got pushed over to the next quarter, mm. uh, and that's obviously going to cause a lot of stress, right? And mm-hmm. uh, because you are responsible for meeting that number, yeah. But I think you have to sort of ask is that let's say I get I mean what is let's say what the what is the worst consequence of that this particular event right mm. the worst cons- possible consequences that you get fired right mm. possibly right mm-hmm. and mm. so you you get fired you lose your immediate career mm. but you should have the confidence in it that you are going to get bounced back and even in that case the worst possible thing is that. I mean, let's say you are in the US, you can sell everything and move back to India. Mm. Or you go to live with your parents, something like mm-hmm. that. Like, what's the worst that can happen? Mm-hmm. So that's one technique. And there are def- potentially other techniques as well, like meditation, or you mm-hmm. have to sort of uh, have have a different mindset. And people use different techniques to deal with stress. Mm-hmm. But the one I used was, what's the worst that can happen? Right. Mm. Okay. And mm-hmm. as you probably are like, I mean, so let's say, you decide to do a startup and let's assume that your kids have gone off to college, your house is paid off. And 
So your risk is very low at this point in time, uh, right? Yeah. So what's the worst that can happen, right? I mean, you live on your existing retirement funds and and continue into retirement, right? So mm -hmm. you're, again, it's not going to, I mean, uh, you have to look at it from that perspective, right? I mean, that mm -hmm. you are not as compromised as you think you might be, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, these are, I guess, uh, things that I prefer, but I mean, different people, as I said, have different techniques to deal with it, right? Yeah, sure. Now, the, somewhat related to that, when uh, you mentioned that uh, there is a huge uh, responsibility and also that ownership uh, for the team that comes together when you're the founder and you have the rest of the team. So two questions there. Now, one is uh, how do you create, say, the same passion or uh, that amount of uh, you know, uh, commitment of, for I mean, in a, in a context of a lot of uncertainties and um, aspirations. Uh, second is um, the need to have some time or make some time for the people issues as well. Uh, how were you able to you know, handle that? So good questions. And I think the first one, let me start with the first one, right? So how mm. do you motivate people? Mm. The key I think aspect of motivation is success, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so we say things like, I mean, you create a, a efficient organization and you uh, have a good HR process and you have good engineering practices and you hire good engineering managers to, uh, just to give you an example on the engineering side of things is to have good managers to sort of talk to people, understand their aspirations and so on and so forth. Mm. But in my experience, the biggest motivator is success, right? So if you are mm -hmm. able to get to your first customer, the next customers in a very harmonious way without too much conflict, that is, I think, what keeps people ticking, mm. right? Uh, you, so again, like, I mean, without naming names, I've seen companies which have fueled their growth primarily through success, even though they were managed pretty badly, right? Mm -hmm. The success was the thing that sort of held the, those companies together. Okay. So I sort of, from my experience, I feel that, uh, I mean, obviously you should index on good uh, hiring practices as well as good uh, corporate environment and good culture and things like that. I mean, there's a saying that the culture eats a strategy for breakfast. Mm -hmm. right? There's a lot of uh, uh, truth to that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you if you have a winning culture, that is mm -hmm. the one that causes has the most impact. I mean, at least I've seen a lots of ups and downs, and I think what pulls companies out of a funk mm -hmm. is a success they have on the marketplace. Uh, the second question was the people management. Yeah, it's a big thing. Mm -hmm. uh, as That's I said it. before, the people who come here are driven to by a risk-reward ratio and the ability to make an impact. And mm -hmm. you are mm -hmm. going to have a lot of personality conflicts, right? Mm -hmm. And so how you manage that is is, a, is art by itself, right? Yeah. So yeah. either you grow fast enough that you give a big piece of the pie to everybody, mm -hmm. or you have to 
decide that whether somebody is too toxic for your company. I think ambition is a hard thing to manage, right? I mean, as you see mm-hmm. in the world in general, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of uh, problems in the world are caused by unbridled ambition, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, again, without getting into specifics, I think you just have to look into world events and you can see that like uh, ambition is a, mm-hmm. is sometimes a big factor in a lot of decision-making. And yeah. that is sometimes toxic to a company where you want mm-hmm. people to collaborate a lot, mm-hmm. but everybody out there to get the experience and some mm-hmm. people want more, I mean, I think more control and more power. And that's where I think a lot of the conflicts come into play. Mm-hmm. For instance, here in uh, uh, the aspect of uh, building a team or dealing with people, uh, would do you recommend entrepreneurs to take outside help? whether it is uh, HR people and all that, rather than doing everything themselves. Stay tuned in for the next episode. We thank Siddharth for the music and Anita for promoting the software people's stories. If you like this episode, Please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your story, contact us at podcasts at pm-powerconsulting.com.